So I am assuming that there would be a general consensus that if I asked when you're going from one place to another, most likely in your car, you probably take out your phone and use an app. You put in the address and it guides you to where to go. And some of you may have different apps you prefer. I know there's one in particular that will actually, others can put on where they see the police and now you have little insider track and information hopefully to avoid that. No intention to harm or be kind, unkind to any of you police out there. I know I would never do that most of the time. Uh, and so the interesting thing with an app like that is if you put in south instead of north or one number wrong is you don't get the right address. And in fact, it's gotten to the point now where many of us are so reliant upon the technology that we don't actually know where we're going, we just trust the device is gonna tell us where to go next. True? We would say that. Now, if you're a little older, I know many of you won't know this, but back in the day when I was growing up, we did, had something called a map. And usually it was state by state, and you'd watch, if you're on a trip, your parents pull it out, and you'd hear words exchanged between your father and your mother that were words you didn't usually want to hear, nor were excited to hear, that usually made you sweat in the back seat, or if you had popcorn, it might make you enjoy the drama of what went on. And even in between that, as I grew older, there became something, we actually were members of AAA. A AAA would do something, if you told them the trip, they would create what's called a triptych which was basically a series, a booklet you opened up, and it only gave you the map you needed to the next journey, and then you'd, take, you'd fold it over. It was like, it basically, it's like a, an app, but for people that don't have, you get the idea. Now, before all of this, though, before roads, before cars, there was one simple way that people found direction, and it was through looking to where the North Star was and everything made sense from there. Now, living in West Michigan, we said that only works about every three or four days because we can't see it frequently. But the, the tenor was, if you know where north is, you know where everything else is. In a sense, it becomes a guiding principle. Now, I, I tell you that in the church, we talk about what we say are blood issues, pen issues, and pencil issues, meaning there's aspects of our belief, we would say are pencil it means we write them down and they matter to us, but they're not really central. We don't, we're not going to fight and argue about them. We might even not be sure how important they are. There's pen issues where we go, this is important. I write it down, but I still want to be in relationship. I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, I, I, it matters, but I'm not going to die for this. And then there's what we call blood issues, which are, man, as a follower of Jesus, I'll die on the hill for this one. And what I want you to know is as we look at resurrection, it is without doubt the most central issue in the life of a Christian to look and say we actually believe this thing that everybody says is weird and crazy happened. And so today we simply want to explore that together. To center ourselves on what we see makes everything else make sense. And I want to be really clear. I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm not trying to argue with you. Although there are great reasoning things we can talk about, and I'm glad to do that at other times, but my prayer, and I will tell you, our whole board and staff, for all of the season of Lent, we have been praying every day, particularly to this day, that God would reveal himself to you, and the resurrection will make sense. And so I'm simply going to look with you at one of the recountings of that. There are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And all four of them give a lot of attention to Jesus' final week of suffering and death and ultimately resurrection because it's very central to understanding what God came to do, who he is, what he's done, and what it means for us.
And so with that, we're going to look at John's account. And I want to give you just a little background to how John sees the world and how he frames the world historically, because it will matter as we look into this account of the resurrection. So John, when he begins his gospel, uses images of light and darkness, and he's hearkening all the way back to the beginning of time and creation. When we read in Genesis that God spoke and things came to be, that God created, he says that the world was void and without shape, and it was dark and chaotic, basically. And so the image of darkness is an image of pain and struggle and chaos and we'd say sin and mess and decay. And God spoke and breathed life into it. In the same way when Jesus comes, John gives us at the beginning of the story that he came and he was light and the light overcame the darkness. In other words, this chaos and mess. Now I tell you that because as we enter into this story We call it today Holy Saturday. It's the idea that there's just time between Jesus' death and resurrection that is dark and waiting and heartache and heartbreak. And John frames the resurrection this way as he begins to tell the story. And so we're going to take it up there in chapter 20. And John says this, early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. See, John is wanting us to see and be reminded of the darkness that is before us of the suffering, of the pain, of the despair, of the loneliness, of the struggle. You see, because God is a God who meets us in struggle, and maybe some of you here today are in that place. Now, what I love about how this goes is it's the first day of the week. John is also framing for us that it's a new day, it's a new week, it's a new work. And so Mary is our beginning figure that we see. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and sees that the stone has been removed from the entrance. In other words, Jesus' body isn't there, and she is in shock. Now, before we move on to it, I want to stop and point out something with Mary Magdalene. She's the one that is our first person aware of Jesus not being present. She is the first testimony, if you will, of someone who sees that he's not there. And we don't think about this. I've shared before that women were considered unreliable in ancient history, and please no one say amen to that or you'll probably be taken out. Um, But I want to tell you a little more about the picture of this because it matters particularly that both how it unfolds and why John focuses on it. So if you look at the Mishnah, which is kind of a, it's basically a Jewish book that tells what Israel believed and why they believed in the scriptures. It's kind of their code of how to live. It's called the oral tradition. In there, it talks about unreliable witnesses, and it speaks to men in particular because at the time they were considered the only reliable ones and tells areas you're not to trust them. If you know a man, for example, that rolls the dice, plays with dice, don't trust him. Now, many of you are looking going, I play dice games. What's wrong with me? Don't worry, it's not about that. But what it meant was... Dice was associated with gambling. And to the Jewish mind, gambling was taking resources that were yours and either giving them away in a place you shouldn't, in a way you shouldn't, or taking from others in a way you shouldn't, in a place you shouldn't. So in other words, it would be considered unethical and lacking integrity. If a man is unethical or lacks integrity in this area, don't listen to his witness. That's what he's saying. And he goes through a series of these. In the Mishnah, it actually, it speaks of men who, there's a Sabbath year where you're not supposed to sell your goods, you're just supposed to live off the land. He says, if you sell those products that year, don't trust them. 
And he goes on to other things, racing pigeons, which I won't even get into. That's its own thing. Pigeons are just gross. So that's, no, that's not why he says it. Uh, and he talks about usury. Actually, any man who loans and then expects interest, it's considered unethical. Ultimately, which is a whole other thing we'd have to get into another day, but we live in a sad state in terms of that now. I still went there. The whole idea is there's certain people you can't trust, and then it only speaks two things about women. One is, if a woman brings you evidence, don't trust the evidence she brings because she's a woman. If the woman herself is giving testimony, don't trust her because she's a woman. Now, I'm not advocating for any of this, just so you're clear, but I want you to understand women had no reliability. In fact, for the first few hundred years of the church, even as Mary's story is told, many teachers skipped over it and just went to Peter and John because they're part of it too because women were thought of as unreliable. Now, why that matters so much is that many of us, when we hear about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and hear he's a God who loves us and is with us, think we're unreliable and unworthy. And it's just not true. We think of ourselves, some of us, as not good enough, not doing enough. Why would God ever talk to me? And we've already put on this kind of unworthy statement about us, and we miss that the first person that is there for Jesus' resurrection and the first person we will see that actually sees him is not only a woman, but a woman who's been through some really difficult things. She's been delivered of demons and is a mess, and she's found new life. And so the first thing I want you to know is anyone here today who somehow thinks Jesus is grading us and picking one over another and deciding this one they do better and this one doesn't, you're just wrong. Man, Jesus looks at you in all of your brokenness in any place you feel unworthy and goes, I love you, I'm with you, I'm for you. And Mary is the first sign we get of that. Whew, come on, we could just stop there and go, that's awesome. And I hope, if nothing else, we start there. Do not dismiss how God wants to reveal himself to you because you somehow think you wouldn't be considered good enough because it's just not true. I just love that Mary is the one we first see because of it. And we'll continue on her journey, but I want to stop for a minute then and take what's going on here right now. So in this part of it, basically, Mary is disheartened. She still believes Jesus has passed. She just doesn't know what they did with the body. And so what's about to happen, and I'm going to tell you a little more about it, is she's going to run. And running is actually going to become the theme of this resurrection story. She's not the only one. We'll see some other people running. So basically running is what's going to take place away from, towards, all sorts of things. So I'm just curious, in, by a show of hands, how many of you in this room, and you can answer online, are actually runners where you run? so funny. I asked this last service. I had hardly, how many of you actually work out, do something in some way? A lot of you work out. Most of you go running. No, thank you. And I'm the same way. The interesting thing about running is you need the right shoe to run. That matters if you do run. So I, I did some research this week and I found a very interesting shoe. This is a one of a kind shoe. It actually says Matthew 14, 25 on it. This was made, someone took a Nike, a particular Nike shoe and they basically got holy water from a bishop that had blessed it from the Jordan River, and they put the holy water underneath in here. So basically, you are walking on holy water when you wear this. This shoe went for $4,000, by the way, when it sold. It also determined, though their shoe's more expensive, it was the most talked about online, positively and negatively. It was called the Jesus shoe, and it was even called the walk-on-water shoe. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? And if one of you owns it, I'm just sorry. 
And, and while it's kind of funny and interesting, it, it is a little bit of an image for us in that many of us think of Jesus' resurrection as if it is something that gives us something under our feet to just run on. But we run where we want, we run how we want, and we run and do what we want. And so I want you to consider this metaphor of running as we go into the text. So let me take you first to Mary and how she runs and what this is like. She comes running away from the tomb. She is heartbroken and running away. She runs to Peter and then the other disciple, the one Jesus loves, who we most likely believe is John who's writing this, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. In other words, I'm a mess and I'm running away. I see an empty tomb, but there's no way I can believe anything other than they took him. So for her, as she's looking and then running, she's running away from the tomb in disbelief. No way did this happen. Now, Peter and John, it tells us, here, and they both run to the tomb. And this is what I love. I don't know that John's petty, but it's how I read it. So John basically says, hey, you know what? The one that Jesus loved got there first, and Peter got there next. <laughs> like, why did he have to tell us that? Hey, just wanted you to know, uh, I'm faster. I got there quicker. I'm better. I don't know that was the motive, but I will tell you this. We often look at following Jesus as a contest that we're competing with each other on. I'm going to get there first. It's something to consider because they're running towards, but even as John frames it, there's a bit of a com competition. Now, Peter goes right into the tomb. John stays outside, it tells us. And then what we hear is John's description. He looks in and he sees linen and a cloth, which he would have had two burial things, the linen around him and the cloth over his head. And it says they're neatly folded and set on the very, very place that Jesus' body would have been. Which, by the way, many people read and go, you know, as an organized person, I knew Jesus was organized. I knew godliness is organization. So many of you are going to go home and go, you know, you need to pick it up a bit. Pick up your clothes and do other things. If Jesus, when he rose, could put his linens away, you can put your underwear away. Put your stuff in the thing. Come on, get with it. By the way, that is not a good biblical case, but have fun. <laughs> so anyway, back to the story. So what happens from here is while John is describing it, he says, we see the body's not there. And he basically says, well, what he's seen, we saw and believed. But then he describes it. We, don't, we didn't really know what it meant. And then Peter and John head back to where they were. They just leave. Now, I want you to picture the running, and I want you to picture the different means and ways of running. You see, because Mary looks in, and she doesn't think it's true, so she runs away. See, I think there's some of us that we hear the resurrection of Jesus. We think of an empty tomb. We go, I don't buy it. I'm, I'm running away from this thing. And, and lots of things cause us this. We go, if Jesus rose, why are Christians so fake and so harsh and so judgmental and not living like Jesus? It can't be true because we have fake people. Other people look and go, why is there so much suffering in the world? There's suffering. There's no way this resurrection happened. I'm running away from it. Because if God rose, there's no way suffering would continue. Some of us, we see the empty tomb and we go, man, I know what God's asking of me. It's more than I want to give. I'm not ready to surrender. I'm going to take charge of my own life. There's no way I'm going to trust him with this. I'm running away from the tomb. Some of us, we look at all the religions in the world. We go, listen, there are good people doing all sorts of good things. No one can exclaim any exclusivity. There's no way this even matters. I'm running away from the tomb. I don't know, but I, 
I don't know what your story is, but for some of us here, we're running away trying to dismiss it without asking if it happened. And then there are others of us who believe. But a bit like Peter and John, while we believe, we look in the tomb and go, I believe, I don't really know what it means. And to be honest, I like the way my shoes are and I like the way I run. And we might run differently. We might consider that, you know what, Jesus rose, so basically it's like holy water under my feet and now I'm supercharged to run because he does in me what I want to do. And we keep running assuming Jesus will follow our lead and go where we want to go. And so we keep running, but we're running not really knowing or understanding. Others of us run and we go, I know he died and I know he rose and I know I'm supposed to be forgiven, but now my job is to make up for it. So I better be running because if I don't run enough, Jesus is going to be disappointed in with me. And we live most of our life considering Jesus must be disappointed. So we're constantly running, hoping if we run enough, maybe one day he'll finally go, okay, you're doing better enough. But we're always running and never feeling like we're going to arrive. We look in the tomb, we believe, but we're really not walking and running and buying it by how we're living. And then others of us, we just think, you know what, God gave me a mind and I'm doing pretty good at this thing and I'm pretty skilled and I'm still trusting him. I put put on my good holy water shoes, but I'm doing it. And I'm doing it better than some other people. And like John, I'm getting to the tomb quicker. And we run in a way that we are comparing and believing God gave us the way to do it and we can do it on our own and we just keep running. And then some of us, we add to Jesus. You know what? Jesus said he came to bring his kingdom. I know how the kingdom's supposed to come. And we add things to Jesus. We add everything from our views of culture to our views of politics to our views of other people. And we throw those in there. And we go, you know what? Jesus has to do it this way. And we put the shoes on and say, Jesus, run with me. I know how best to make your kingdom move. We look in and we see the resurrection and we believe, but we haven't really discovered all that it means and who he is. I just wonder if we could all admit there's more to explore. It's not simply us going, well, he rose. We all get it. Let's move on. It's something bigger than that. And I don't want us to be like Peter and John at first who looked in and saw and believed, but they just went back home. You know, I'm kind of going to go back and live the way I live. Keep my shoes on. Keep running. Got a lot to run on. In fact, you better hurry this message up because I got lunch going too. Like, we've got things to do today. And we're not looking going, I want to see him. I want to know him. I want to really understand who he is and what he's done and what it means. So John and Pete, they leave. And Mary stays there. She's run back. And it gives us, as John continues, her statement. She stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look inside the tomb. She literally is crying and heartbroken. She is lost, and she literally has unanswered life. She's looking in the tomb, and she's crying, and she's seeing his body gone, but she doesn't know where it is, and she doesn't believe any hope came from it. And I wonder how many of us today are looking into an empty tomb going, you know what? I got a cancer diagnosis. I don't see him rising from that. I got a broken relationship that I thought would be there in betrayal. I look in that tomb and go, why? And where are you when that happens? 
life did not turn out the way I thought with my kids. And I look in there and I'm heartbroken. We have our students looking in going, I'm living in a world that is much more difficult and much more fractured than my parents were and I don't think it'll ever get better. Where is he? If the tomb is empty, it just doesn't seem like there's new life coming from it. And the stories can go on and on. Many of us here today are heartbroken thinking, God, if you rose, how? When this is what I see and what I'm looking at and we're just weeping. Mary, uh, before she looks back, she'll have some interactions, but I want to give you the context uh, in where she is as she's looking in the tomb. So Mary, as she's looking in the tomb, uh, John tells us in John 19, the chapter before, that the tomb is in an area that's actually near the cross, and both of them are in what he says is a garden. He describes it, and it's very important he does it. Listen, there's a garden here. It's where the cross was and where the tomb is. Not next to each other, but in the same area. The garden matters because John is framing for us a whole context of Scripture. You see, if you go all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, guess where they lived? In a garden. Adam and Eve lived in a garden in community and communion with God as his subjects, as people to oversee the creation, but ones that were submitted to him. And they said, no, thank you. We don't want to submit. We want to be like you. And death enters and sin enters and mess enters and destruction enters, and sorrow enters. And you and I are living in it in our own ways ever since. So can you imagine, though we didn't talk about it yet, the gospel spent a lot of time through this whole final week, Jesus' death as well and his suffering. Well, guess where the cross is planted? It's planted in a garden. (laughs) Come on, that is awesome. Jesus dies in a garden. He says it is finished He gives up his spirit because guess what? Jesus' very death pays for all this mess that was broken in the garden and offers a new way of new life through freedom and forgiveness in the garden. And now new life is going to come out of the garden. And Mary isn't even aware of it. She's just looking in heartbroken. See, Jesus accomplishes two major things. One is he conquers sin and offers forgiveness. The other is he conquers death and offers new life and resurrection. Which, by the way, even in circumstances that are hopeless, means death is not the end, but offers hope in the midst of life too. So Mary's there. She's looking in. She's crying. And it tells us two angels are there, one at the head of where Jesus would have been laying before and other at the feet. And they look and they ask her why she's crying. And she says, I'm crying. Where have they taken him? Where have they put him? And then suddenly she has a bit of a stirring and she begins to turn and begins to see the environment around her and doesn't realize it, but she comes across Jesus not knowing it's him. These, by the way, are the first words of Jesus. We studied the final seven words of Jesus going into the tomb. Now these are the first words coming out and they're to Mary. Come on. You feel unworthy? You are worthy. He says, woman, why are you crying? What is it? Who is it you're looking for? And then she says, thinking it was the gardener. Now, we would run past this, but that is John's way of saying, hey, I want you to get a picture. She's in a garden. Let's remember all the brokenness and destruction that happened here. And here it is. God's redeeming. He's conquering sin and he's conquering death. And new life is coming out of the garden. Tell me God is not the most creative storyteller and story maker. You think we're creative? Guess where we got it from? I know you guys are not enamored with this, but I am. It's amazing. So 
You get home later and you go, man, that, that was the garden. Wow. You're responding like you did when we offered the prizes you're winning. Like, come on. Jeez. You're so subdued. We're so West Michigan. Yeah, I like it. I'm just not going to act like I like it. <laughs> Thank you. She then answers, though, why she's asking, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. She's still lost. And then everything changes. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And in that very moment, she suddenly realizes who he is. She sees him as he is. By the way, this is not the only time this happens. As Jesus rises, he's walking with people, telling them about things they don't even realize that. And moments shift, and suddenly their eyes are opened, and they realize who he is. She hears his voice as he calls her name. And this is how John describes it earlier. The sheep know the shepherd's voice, and she knows it's him. And her eyes are opened. Everything changes, and all she says back is Rabboni. Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, that's an inadequate way to describe it for our purposes. I want to give you a little more just to build the, the picture of this even stronger for us. When she calls him Rabboni, when she calls him teacher, it, it can also mean Lord and Savior. In other words, she's looking at him, and when he calls her name, she suddenly realizes it's him and he's risen. And in a sense, what she says is, I'm going to stop running. And what she says is, something sacred's happening here. And you know what the... Jews did when it was a sacred ground, they took their shoes off. What's happening right now is holy. And the God of the universe not only rose, he's, he's talking to me. He knows me. He loves me. And she basically says, I will follow you. I'm no longer running and doing my thing. I'm stopping running. I'm taking it off. I am on holy ground with you. And when you're a rabboni, when you're a rabbi, it means I follow you, not I learn from you. I become like you. I live and walk and do what you do. Everything changes for her. And, uh, you know, I've been praying for you guys for this for the last weeks, and we have all together... Um, Man, somewhere I'm going to repress emotions again because this has just been, oh, I'm not really going to do it, but I don't enjoy this part. But I have been really moved praying for you because here's the thing. Jesus knows every one of your names and he loves every single one of you. And he wants you to hear him call your name and he wants you to know that he sees you and that he loves you. And I'm so frustrated that we don't think that's true that you either think certain people get to hear and others don't, and it's on some merit. Like if you run hard enough, then Jesus will show himself to you. Not true. Or that somehow what you've done is too unworthy. Not true. Or even that what he's done is given you a thing to work at. He doesn't really want to know you. He just wants you to keep working harder. And if you do enough, maybe then he'll reveal himself. Not true. The beauty of the resurrection is the God of the universe sees every one of us and is just whispering our names, wanting our eyes to be opened, that you and I would go, I'm going to stop running. I'm going to follow. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to know who he is, and I'm going to follow him. Time to take the running shoes off and time to sit at his feet and follow that's what he's inviting you and me to on this Easter day, not to simply sit and go, that's a nice idea and a nice story, but it's something even bigger. 
one of the things that matters to me deeply and matters to our whole leadership culture and our serving culture is we say regularly we want to live it before we lead it. In other words, we are not going to play at this thing. And so it leads us at times when we're seeking God and not finding him to go, I'm going to be honest that I'm struggling right now. But it also leads us to help each other discover, to hear, and to grow. And so I I asked the board and staff, do you have stories of how you see resurrection or ways you see it? In other words, tell me how it's true for you. And and I I couldn't give them all to you, but I'm just going to give you two examples from the two board members and two staff of how they have experienced and how they see resurrection. Because what they're really saying to you is, I hear God's voice calling my name, and I'm living in a different way, or I'm trying to, setting aside my running, taking off my shoes and following him. So I just want you to hear brief excerpts from these four stories to know we are telling you something we're living, not something we're just thinking is an idea. So this is Marty from our board. He says, for me, resurrection has been a transformation of who I am. I've gone from living in anger and arrogance and selfishness to living in peace and generosity and empathy and forgiveness. And by the way, Marty would say, this isn't a done deal, but I'm seeing transformation as Jesus speaks and leads me. From living out of my own temporal ambitions to living God's eternal purpose. Resurrection continually brings me deeper into the heart of God who had made me and who I am in him. Marty has heard Jesus' voice say, Marty, and he says, Rabboni, I'm going to follow you. Let me tell you about Robin on our board. She says, the resurrection is a constant reminder of his never-ending love for me, his relentless forgiveness, and knowing that each day I get another chance to be a brand new person in him. And I love hearing from Robin on our board when she talks about how God leads and speaks and that she seeks after him because sitting at his feet, she discovers who he is, and he continually reminds her how he's with her and for her and loves her and is changing her through resurrection. Let me give you two of our staff that have shared parts of their story. Amy, our children's pastor, said it this way, I have been God's child since I was a little girl. In other words, I was taught and believed. But the circumstances in life, the trauma I've been through, left me broken and the ache of my heart feeling abandoned, unloved and stuck in my faith, striving so hard to be enough. In other words, running and running and running. As I cried out, as I wrestled with God for this abundant life, the joy of my salvation is presence. It wasn't her wrestling, but it was God running to her and rescuing her, healing past hurts and bringing parts of me that I'd buried back to new life. He heard, she heard the whisper of Jesus, Amy, and continues to deepen and grow in what that means in her life for resurrection. And then Evan, who says, after, and this is significant, even in his own story this last year, as his dad passed away after a long, very hard goodbye from cancer. For me, resurrection is seeing dead things come back to life, areas of my life of pain and hurt and heartache that I start to experience freedom, hope, and joy. And because of the transforming power of the Spirit, he's not saying this is an ideal. He's saying it as an experience because he hears God's voice say to him, Evan. And see, I believe it because I see it in my own life and I see it in the lives of people around me. And I just want you to know, God is calling out your voice and I am praying that you will hear him, whatever that looks like, whether it's a sense, whether it's an idea or a thought or a vision or a dream, God wants to speak to you. And so simply this Easter, what I wanna say to you very 
ideally and very simply is stop running. You said, I think some of you are running away. You got all sorts of reasons you want to dismiss the resurrection because of what's not working. And I go, guess what? All the things that are hypocritical don't make the resurrection invalid. They're just people that are struggling and hypocritical. It has nothing to do with whether it's true. It has to do with their miss. Maybe there are people looking in at the resurrection in the tomb, but they're just not letting themselves live into it or discover it. Maybe for others of you, you've had enough betrayal and pain. Maybe you see other things. You go, this is not about whether we're good enough or whether there's other thoughts. It's about did Jesus rise or not? I want you to stop running. Stop running away. Others of you who run your own race, I'm saying stop running. Stop thinking you have to achieve enough for God. Stop trying to make Jesus be what you want him to be so you get what you want. That is never who he'll be or is. I'm inviting you, whatever race you're running, trying to make up for past failures, trying to be worthy enough, stop running. And I don't want it to be a momentary. I want you to take your shoes off. I want you to realize that God's very presence wants to be with you, and it's a sacred space where he wants to say your name and have you know he is with you and for you and loves you. And then more than anything, my desire out is for you to be a follower to follow our Lord, our Master, and our Savior, to actually go where he's going, do what he's doing, live how he calls you to live. It's an invitation to following our rabbi, not an invitation to have him follow you to what you want. See, I think when we follow him to what we want, we look to an empty tomb, and we believe, but we want his power and presence under our feet so we do what we want in our own run. What he's inviting us to is to take it off and follow. To hear his love, his whisper, and stop striving, stop trying, stop moving in your own direction. We have a vision that we've been sharing for our church really over the last six or eight months, and we've said it this way, that we, our vision for our church is that we will be people others say they've been with Jesus. They won't be impressed by who we are. They won't be impressed by what we do, but they will know we've been with Jesus. And we don't mean by that we're trying to portray that we've been with Jesus. We mean we actually want to be with him, and it's evident because of how he's moving as we follow. And I'm simply inviting you to respond to that today. Paul, who writes to the early church, gives two simple things when he says what's it look like to follow Jesus. He uses the word belief and confess. And he says this, basically, if you believe in your heart that God actually raised Jesus from the dead, and that's really the idea, not of a cognitive belief, though it's part of it. It's about relying on him. In other words, it's not relying on yourself. It's taking off your shoes. It's stopping running and sitting at his feet and relying by your belief that resurrection happened and he actually has a place for you in it. And then confess means we cry out. All through scripture, all it says is, those who cry out to the Lord will be saved. And so for some of you, it's a first-time thing. We want you to cry out and be saved. We want you to know you're not just looking into an empty tomb wondering that the God of the universe is standing outside looking at you saying your name, saying your mind, follow me. I think there's some of us here today who need renewal. You know what? You, years ago, you bought this deal, but you've kind of moved back to racing again. You found some shoes and said, I'm going to start running again. And it's a renewal for you to go, I want to be there again. 
I want to move in a deeper way with him. And then for all of us, we want to invite you to deepen your understanding. Resurrection isn't a one event that you just go, I get it. It's a constant understanding and growing and what that means. It deepens in us. And so I want to remind all of this, in the next six or seven weeks, we're doing a series that we've called Resurrection Now, Resurrecting Now. It's from chapter 8 in Romans where Paul gives all this explanation of what it looks like to be people of the resurrection. And I just want you to see a 30-second bumper just to kind of know this is where we're going for all of us to deepen. So take a look. You know, I, I want to say this, and then I'm going to invite you to respond and pray. It, it's funny, we, we always fight, we fight legalism. I don't have to be at church all the time, and that's true. We don't have to be. But what we've done is we've made that our, basically we've made that our image that we're free, and we very rarely darken the doors of being together anymore. It works when it works. I'm here when I get there. And I want to challenge you to be here every week for this series. Just as a statement to say to the Lord, I want to know you more. Because part of the reason we look in an empty tomb and don't know what to believe is we're not pursuing to know. So I want to invite us to that. Let me lead us in prayer in each of these groups. And I want to invite you to just ask the Lord how he's speaking to you to how to respond. So let's close your eyes and let me guide us even as the band makes their way back to you. Lord, I ask that you would speak to each person today. I pray specifically for those who are not followers of you that they would hear your voice for the first time in some way saying, I'm here. Maybe it's peace you wash over them. Maybe it's a calm. Maybe it's just an invitation, a compelling way to want to respond. And Lord, I pray they would even just say, Lord, I believe in my heart that you rose and I confess that I need you. So Jesus, be my savior. And even as they pray it, fill them. Lord, I pray for those who need renewal today. They've been running and they need to get the shoes off and stop and sit at your feet and become a follower again or more deeply. Renew them in that today, that they would confess and believe. They would take off and put on being followers. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would not look at the resurrection as a momentary event, but as a continual depth of how we can understand, walk in, and live in, and fill us freshly with the power of your resurrection today. I pray this in your name. Amen.